0: We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel.
1: Our text today is in Jeremiah 31. That's Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 34. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more.
0: Hey, it's good to be with you. Hey, just two quick announcements before we jump into this great book of Jeremiah. Uh, if you're a guest, welcome to Emmaus Church. I'm proud of you for coming to early service on Daylight Savings Time. Uh, that, that's a good, a good move. That's a way to get Daylight Savings Time started right. So good work. Uh, if you're a guest with us, we want to know you and uh, we want to answer any questions you might have. And so if you want to Uh, Learn more information about the church or introduce yourself, which we would love you to do. Uh, Feel free to go to the Connect table after the service, and uh, we'll we'll, we'll give you a cup in exchange for some information, and we just want to get to know you and uh, what brought you here. Covenant members, as always, it's amazing to be with you all. It's amazing to see your beautiful faces on this Sunday morning. Uh, It's a joy to be with you. Also, one more announcement. The deadline to register for the women's retreat is this Wednesday. And so, if you want to go on the women's retreat, which I suggest you do, uh, the deadline to register is this Wednesday. Okay, with that being said, let's jump in. We are in our third week of a series in which we are marching through the prophets. We are taking um, a really big bite, and we're going to try to go week by week through each prophet, one prophet per week. This is our third week. The first week was an introduction. And then we did Isaiah last week. And now we have the very terrifying task of the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah is an incredible book. But we have our work cut out for us. By word count, right, if we're counting words, Jeremiah is not only the longest prophet, but the longest book in the Bible. The entire Bible. It's the longest book by word count. So this is going to be a lot of work to cover the the entirety of the longest book of the Bible in one sermon, but it's going to be joyful work. It's work that I'm excited for. So let's pray, ask the Lord for his help because we're gonna need it, and then we'll jump into this great book. God, we really do need you today. And it's not just because the book of Jeremiah is difficult and long um, or, or even the heaviness that we feel in the book. Well, we, we need you every day, Lord. And so we, we, we just start our time in your word today with a confession of neediness. Lord, we, we, we come into the room with empty hands. There's a lot of people in this room, and, and I even, Lord, I walk in today with a distracted mind and a distracted heart. And God, I know that in this room are many distracted minds, In this room are hearts that are filled with sorrow. In this room are hearts that are filled with joy. And there's a lot in between, Lord. And I pray that regardless of where we find ourselves this morning, we allow ourselves to just sit under your word. Hear of the beauty of your grace. God, what we need more than anything today is you. So would you reveal yourself to us in the words of Jeremiah. Would you be with us? Would you be near to us as the covenant faithful God that we read about in Jeremiah? Lord, we know we are fickle and frail. We are prone to wonder. We know it. So therefore, Lord, we ask you to be faithful for us. We love you. Be with your preached word today. Lord, be with the the heard word today. May it stir hearts. May we fall in love more and more with you, our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Do a work in us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So when the idea for the Prophet series came up, when we, were, we, we actually did a weekend away. Uh, all the pastors got an Airbnb up in Smithville. We went away for the weekend. We wanted to plan a year's worth of sermons. That, that was kind of the goal for the weekend. We, we wanted to kind of ask, what, what do our people need to hear? What, what books should we consider preaching? How, when we pick the books, how should we split them up? What, what, what should we do here? And the idea came forward that maybe it would be kind of fun to preach through all of the prophets in 17 weeks. Fun, maybe not the right word, but that was an idea. We said, let's preach through all of the prophets in 17 weeks. And I told them immediately, as we started thinking about this idea, that if I could only preach one passage and all of the prophets. And really, I could take that further without hyperbole. If I could only preach one passage in the entirety of the Old Testament, it would be Jeremiah 31. That's what I would want to preach. So the pastors being remarkably kind men gave me Jeremiah. (laughs) So here's what we're going to do today. Here's our roadmap, right? For you who, like me, who hate ambiguity and want to know exactly where we're going, this is where we're going. First... I want to walk through some of the background of the book of Jeremiah, just some contextual issues to kind of frame the book, right? to give us some more handles to hold on to as we work our way through this book. So we're going to do some contextual stuff. I want, I want to do that because I want to do justice to this book as, as its own entity, right? As, as the book at large. It's a very big book, so I want to give us some contextual help. Second, I want to move from flying over the text at 50,000 feet to kind of zooming in on these four verses in Jeremiah 31. And then we will land the plane by marveling at Jesus, of course. Okay, so that's our roadmap. Got it? That's where we're going. Contextual background, Jeremiah 31, marvel at Jesus. That's the the roadmap for this sermon. So let's set the contextual framework. And here's how I'm going to do that. I'm I'm really trying to give you guys structure to the sermon for you note-takers. I know there are a lot of type A people in this room. So here's what we're going to do to to set set the contextual framework of the book of Jeremiah. I want to talk about four things. The man Jeremiah, the date of Jeremiah, the audience of Jeremiah, and the message of Jeremiah. Okay? The man, the date, the audience, and the message. So let's start with the man Jeremiah. Jeremiah. And you are immediately confronted, when you open the pages of this book, you are immediately confronted with this reality, that Jeremiah is a heavy book. It's heavy. I don't know how many of you read it this week, but if you read it, you're probably walking in here with a little bit of heaviness on your shoulders, The chapters add up one after another. They weigh you and weigh you down, and it can feel crushing. The story at almost every turn in the book of Jeremiah feels a tad hopeless. When you work through the text, it feels especially so for the man, Jeremiah. If you read it this week, I'm sure at some point your heart broke for him and you just said, give this guy a break. But this guy just needs a break. Jeremiah has a tremendously hard life. Tremendously. Let me just give you some context about the difficulties of Jeremiah's life uh, through the book. We learn in the very first chapter that he was called to his prophetic ministry at a very young age. Very young age. He said he was still relying on his parents when he was called to preach when he was called to to be a prophet, we learn throughout the book that this very young prophet, who might not have been uh, ready in his own eyes or in worldly eyes, was called to preach a very difficult message. Very difficult message, and it's not received well at all. And that's an understatement. His major oracles, the major sermons that we read in chapter 7 and chapter 26, were especially not received well. Jeremiah is beaten all through this book. He's beaten in chapter 20. He's beaten again in chapter 37. He's beaten again in chapter 38. By chapter 43, he's being kicked out of his country and exiled to Egypt. We learn in chapter 11 that even his hometown was plotting to murder him. He was commanded by the Lord in chapter 16 to never take a wife. Throughout his whole prophetic career, okay, if all of that wasn't devastating enough, throughout his entire prophetic career, which most scholars say lasted probably about 40 years, there seems to be evidence of only two people responding somewhat well to what he said. Forty years, and only two people responding well. We know of Baruch, who becomes his scribe, a very important figure in this book. We read about majorly in chapter 36. And then there's an Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 38 who at least has pity for him. Two people, Baruch and Ethiopian eunuch, in 40 years. Just about everyone else hates what he has to say. Another unique aspect to the man Jeremiah is that throughout this book, we actually get an insight into the prophet's emotion and his inward life. Unlike most prophets, Jeremiah actually lets the reader in. He invites the reader to, to see his personal anguish, his personal emotional toil. And I, I really appreciate that about this particular book. We kind of get an insight into the emotions of this man. This is why he is often called the weeping prophet. Jeremiah is often referred to as the weeping prophet because he is often, we find him in a number of passages, crying and weeping in anguish over the sins of his people who he loves. He weeps over the sins of those that he loves. So that's the person, the man Jeremiah. His life is devastatingly hard. Now the date, beyond just the person of Jeremiah, the date is another important factor to keep in mind when we're trying to make sense of this book. If you were with us two weeks ago, I preached the introduction to this series, and I gave us four chronological handles to hold on to, four dates to hold on to as we work our way through the prophets. Those dates, again, just in case you have a bad memory, were 930 B.C., 722 B.C., 586 B.C., and 538 B.C. In 930 B.C., the once united kingdom of Israel splits into two. The north becoming the kingdom of Israel, the south becoming the kingdom of Judah, and 7.22, so they get their own kings, they become their own people, right? Ten of the twelve tribes of Israel go to the north, and two of the twelve tribes of Israel go to the south. Both countries end up falling into wickedness, and in 7.22, the second chronological handle is that the nation of Assyria comes and destroys the northern kingdom and takes them into exile. So all that's remaining after 7.22 is the southern kingdom of Judah, Well, that only lasts a while because the southern kingdom, though they have hope, they have flickers of hope, they ultimately fall into wickedness as well. And in 586, the the incredibly ferocious nation of Babylon come and takes them into exile. So 930, the kingdom splits, 722, the north is taken away, 586, the south is taken away, and then in 538, the Lord moves the heart of Persia, and uh, the, the king of Persia, Cyrus, and he lets the people return back to their homeland. Okay, so those are our four chronological dates. So where does Jeremiah fit in? Good question. I think the book of Jeremiah actually gives us a few clues on where he fits into that chronology. We see in chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, that it says, The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. So we get our first handle here. We see that Jeremiah's prophetic ministry starts in the 13th year of Josiah's reign as king, which is roughly about 627 B.C. 627 B.C. We see a similar phrase, Jeremiah 25, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. This time, when the Lord speaks through Jeremiah, it would have roughly been about 605 B.C. We learn elsewhere in the book that when when, uh, Jeremiah is sent to Egypt and his prophetic ministry finds its end there, it would have been roughly 580 B.C. So what does that mean? Put it all together. To put the dates on Jeremiah, his ministry would have likely been between 627 B.C. and 580 B.C. Okay? These dates are very important. And if you're in tune, you can see why, can't you? This means that Jeremiah was performing his prophetic ministry during the devastating destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah. He would have seen the Babylonian empire come and demolish the people of God. And he's preaching, by the way, this is going to happen to you. And no one listens. When it comes to the content of the book, there are really three movements Within Jeremiah, there are really three movements that can be categorized like this. These movements are this, warning, judgment, and then restoration. Those are kind of the movements of the book. Jeremiah can feel kind of um, a, a, a bit, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Almost like it's bouncing around if you read straight through it. Some people have even called it an anthology. I would disagree with that. I think it really helps us to structure the narrative of Jeremiah by using these three movements, warning, judgment, and restoration. Jeremiah warned the people of the southern kingdom Judah that if they don't repent and be faithful to the covenant, that a people from the north, Babylon, would be coming. We see this throughout the book that Jeremiah's warnings fall on deaf ears and the people do not repent and become faithful to the covenant. So Jeremiah moves from warning to judgment. He says at the beginning of the book, if you do not repent and come back to the Lord, the great nation from the north is coming. And then we're going to see a turn as they don't repent, and he's going to say, they are coming, and it's not going to be pretty. He preaches against almost everybody. No one is safe in the oracles of Jeremiah, the people, kings, priests, even other prophets. No one is safe from the judgment that Jeremiah describes. Okay, so then the audience of Jeremiah. We've done the man Jeremiah, the date of Jeremiah. So what about the audience? The audience of Jeremiah is another element that adds to its, its, its uh, tragedy, if you will. What we see in the book of Jeremiah is that the audience of Jeremiah is utterly wicked. We can get a glimpse at just how bad they are as, uh, using two examples, the people of, of Judah and the kings of Judah. <clears throat> As for the kings, Jeremiah's ministry would have seen a number of kings come and go, right? A number of kings come and go while Jeremiah is a prophet. We don't learn much about some of them. They're just mentioned in passing, a passing clause, but some of them we learn quite a bit. We get to see just how wicked they were. Listen to the description of Jehoahaz. This is in chapter 22. He's also called Shalem throughout the book. It says this of him, but you have eyes and heart Only for dishonest gain, for shedding of innocent blood, and for practicing oppression and violence. If that description isn't bad enough, we have a fascinating chapter in chapter 36. If you didn't read the book, make sure to go read chapter 36. It's such a fascinating chapter. It's worth mentioning. Another king, Jehoiakim, who is the brother of the king we just mentioned, Jehoahaz. So you have Jehoiakim and Jehoahaz. Jehoahaz reigns first, and then Jehoiakim. Well, Jehoiakim was very proud and utterly disrespected Jeremiah and the word of the Lord. And what happens in chapter 36 is Jeremiah calls a a, a scribe, Baruch, And, and Baruch is called to write everything Jeremiah says down and compile it into a scroll. Jeremiah delivers to Baruch an oracle against the people that he is supposed to go read at the temple. He's going to go read this message from Jeremiah at the temple and tell the people of their wickedness and how they can repent. So Baruch goes and meets a very similar fate as Jeremiah. No one cares. No one cares what Baruch has to say. And what ends up happening is the king, Jehoiakim, hears of the word of warning that is coming from this man Baruch, and he calls for the scroll to be captured and brought to him. And so that's exactly what happened. The king's men go and they seize Baruch. They send him away and they tell him to hide. They don't want to see him again. And they bring the scroll up to the chamber and the king has his, uh, his people read the, the, the scroll to him. And guess what happens? As they read the scroll to him, he takes out a knife and he begins to cut the scroll column by column. And as he cuts the scroll with his knife, it, the text mentions there was a fire beside him. And he begins tossing the scroll into the fire. One by one, the columns of Jeremiah going into the fire. And as they read of what's to happen to them, what this prophet is foretelling will happen to them, it says this terrifying line, neither the king nor any of his servants who heard any of these things were afraid. They were not afraid. And this will not go well for them. As for the people, right, that's the king's, As for the people of Jeremiah, his favorite analogy for them is that the southern kingdom is an adulterous nation of idolaters. Adulterous idolaters. If you read the book this week, as you've been challenged to do, you you, you will come across that phrase of of idolatry as adultery uh, kind of repeatedly. That's his favorite analogy for the people. They have turned away from the faithful one. They have turned away from their covenant husband, and they are idolaters. Throughout the book, the Lord has been faithful to them, and it gets so bad that in chapter 15, God says that He will stop listening to the intercession of Jeremiah on their behalf, and God takes it so far to say this, even if Moses and Samuel stood before Him and prayed on behalf of the people, He would not listen. Their wickedness is too great. The intercession of Moses won't even help at this point. The greats—the intercession of the greats will not help the wickedness of Judah. God says instead, they ask, where are you going to send the people? And he says this, I'm going to send them to four places, to pestilence, to the sword, to famine, and to captivity. So that's the audience of Jeremiah. So then we turn to the message of Jeremiah. All of this leads to what is one of the primary messages of Jeremiah. A great nation from the north. We read that phrase all over this book. This is what he is warning about, a great nation from the north. God is going to judge the people of the southern kingdom of Judah by sending a foreign army to destroy the nation and to take them into captivity and exile. Again, when you read the book, you're confronted with this exact phrase, the people from the north, these people this nation, the great nation of the north, they are going to be an instrument, and this is important, they're going to be an instrument of divine judgment in the hands of the Lord who will use them to discipline His children. However, they are devastatingly cruel. Devastatingly cruel. They are described as a boiling pot in chapter 1. They are described as a devouring beast in chapter 4. They're described as a mighty military machine in chapter 5. But I think the most important description of this this incredibly terrifying nation comes in chapter 6. Just listen to this. Thus says the Lord, Behold, a people is coming from the north country. This is chapter 6, verse 22. A people is coming from the north country. A great nation is stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. They lay hold of bow and javelin. They are cruel and they have no mercy. The sound of them is like a roaring sea. They ride on horses, set in array as a man for battle. Against you, O daughter of Zion, we have heard the report of it. Our hands fall helpless. Anguish has taken hold of us. Pain as a woman in labor. Go not into the fields, nor walk on the road, for the enemy has a sword and terror is on every side of you. O daughter of my people, put on a sackcloth and roll in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son, most bitter lamentation, for suddenly the destroyer will come upon you. This is the description of the people from the north. They are going to devastate the people of God. In short, the great Babylonian empire... Uh, which is used throughout the Old Testament. We're, we're, this, is not, this will not be the last time we hear of this terrifying nation. The Babylonian Empire from the north are coming as divine judgment against the house of Judah. The wicked citizens of the southern kingdom are going to see that God is horrifically serious about covenant loyalty. So, with the context set, we can turn to Jeremiah 31. We've covered the first two movements of the book by four contextual markers. Warning and judgment. Warning and judgment. So now we get to move into restoration. The book of Jeremiah both builds up the people of God and tears down the people of God. And while the judgment passages that tear down the people of God by far outnumber those passages that are designed to build up, I would still argue I would argue that those passages written to build up the people of God are so glorious that they outweigh the devastation in the book. So while we've covered a lot of tragedy, a lot of heaviness, a lot of devastation in the book of Jeremiah, this might come as a surprise to you. But I would argue ultimately that Jeremiah is a book of hope. It's a book of hope. These 52 chapters, though they, fill, they are filled with devastation, this is ultimately a book of hope. And I would argue that there are very few passages better, more qualified than chapter 31 to teach us this. Chapter 31 shows up in this narrative like a dagger of grace. These four verses just pierce through the sorrow of the book and in and, and the hole they leave is a burning ray of hope. This chapter, we see the weeping prophet Jeremiah tell us of news so glorious it is indeed worth weeping over. So let's read the passage together one more time and then briefly walk through it. Jeremiah 31, 31-34. This is what it says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. You know when you're reading a great book or watching a great movie and something happens in a story, something happens in the narrative and you know from that moment on this book, this film, this story, it's never going to be the same. When an event happens in a a good story and it leaves everyone without question, this story is never going to be the same. This story is never going to be the same. That is exactly what Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 34 are for the story of the people of God. And friends, I hope you have ears to hear the deep intertwining reality between the words that we just read and your story today. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will make a new covenant. This is the only time in the entirety of the Old Testament that this phrase, new covenant, is used. This is it. This is the only time. The New Testament is riddled with this language. The New Testament has this language of new covenant all over it. Hebrews 8, Hebrews 9, Hebrews 12, Luke 22, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 3, just to name a few. But this is the only time in the Old Testament that this phrase new covenant is used. And this clause alone, at this clause alone, the attention of the Israelites would have been in Jeremiah's clutches. He would have had them at this sentence alone all of the hearer's ears would have perked up in serious alarm over these words, the new covenant. You have to remember, this is a people whose very identity is rooted in their covenant with God. This is what it means to be an Israelite, is to be one who is in covenant with God. That's what the Israelites have over every other nation. They are in covenant with God. That's what it means to be an Israelite. This is what defines their ethnicity and country. This is what it means to be them. And just like I'm about to argue that Jeremiah 31 will propel you forward into the New Testament, so I will argue that it should propel you backward further in the Old Testament. And I feel like I've said this every sermon I've preached, the last 10 sermons. We must keep the book together. The Bible is not a loosely related anthology of stories that barely connect to one another. It is one unified story. And Jeremiah 31 helps us keep what's happening in the future together with what happened in the past. Because these people, the Israelites, the people of God, their identity is rooted in the old covenant. The covenant that takes place on Mount Sinai with Moses. We can read about it in Exodus 19 through 24. That covenant... The one made with Moses on Mount Sinai has defined this people for centuries. That covenant has been made the standard of living for these people. The law by which the Israelites must live and obey. That that covenant is the very thing they are being judged for not keeping in the book of Jeremiah. This is why they're guilty. They haven't followed the law of the Lord, the covenant of Moses. They're called to teach this This word to everybody. Teach the word of Moses to your children. Recite it when you wake up. Call on it through the day and teach your brother saying, know the Lord. They're called to do this. This This has been their identity for centuries. The words written on the stone at Sinai is the very thing these people are being judged for breaking. Many of them, many of them have lost their homes, their health, their families, just about everything they've ever known because they have broken this covenant. So then, when Jeremiah says, behold, the days are coming when the Lord will establish a new covenant, that's gonna catch their attention. You mean there's gonna be an update to this thing? Like this thing that we've lived our whole lives on that we're being judged for this very moment, there's gonna be a new one? They would be very interested. He continues, And this covenant will not be like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Jeremiah declares that this covenant will be different. There will indeed be something new about the new covenant. And here is what is new about this new covenant. and I will remember their sin no more. I literally have chills reading that. So good. The newness of the new covenant is almost overwhelming. Throughout much of the Old Testament, what we have is a record of consistent and heinous covenant violation from the people of Israel. Episode after episode. Right? You feel this. You know this. Chapter after chapter, scene by scene, one after another, the people of Israel show that they do not have the ability to be faithful to God's covenant. Those words written on the tablets at Sinai often serve as a signpost just to demonstrate how weak these people are. It serves as a signpost to show how unable they are to internalize the law and precepts of the Lord and write it on their own heart. And this is where the glory of the new covenant comes in. Because in this covenant, it will not be the people of God floundering to try to uphold an external covenant. No, this covenant will be an internal covenant, not written on tablets of stone, but on the very heart's of the people of God. More importantly, look at the subject of these clauses. God says, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. Are the responsibilities about the shift from the people of Israel working day and night and turmoil and pulling themselves up by their bootstraps to put the law of Moses that's written on the tablets of Sinai, they're going to stop working and, and, and toiling to write the law of stone on their hearts and instead God is going to take initiative and write the law on their hearts. The people of Israel's inability to follow the law, our inability to follow the law was not a surprise to the Lord. And in His grace, He has provided a way for us to be righteous. And that is His writing the law on our hearts. And we know how this story ends, don't we, friends? We know how the story ends. This glorious story of the new covenant ends in an upper room at a dining table. As Jesus, instituting the Lord's Supper, breaks the bread and He picks up the cup And with cosmic consequences, he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the the covenant, the new covenant in my blood. Acts 10 tells us that all of the prophets bear witness to this man, Jesus Christ. And we can see it clearly here, can't we? The covenant identity of the people of God will never be the same. For centuries, their identity has been rooted in the covenant at Sinai. But the book of Hebrews is going to declare for us that now our identity will be rooted rooted in the covenant on Mount Zion. We are moving mountains, friends, from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion. That's our story. The people of Israel will finally see the beauty and the glory of this new covenant in the person and work of Jesus Christ who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he saw our helpless estate and he did something about it. He saw our covenant violating ways and he acted on our behalf by taking the form of a servant and living the life of complete Covenant obedience, living the life of utter law-keeping and in His blood, which is the blood of the new covenant poured out on the cross, there might be a way of righteousness for a covenant-violating people like you and me. It is through the person and work of Jesus Christ that the Lord writes the law on our hearts in the new covenant. And don't miss the final clause. Don't miss this. Look at the very last sentence here. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. As we close, just think about how this would have landed on an exiled Israelite who's lost everything. Just think about how this would have landed. These words, this sentence, think about how it would have landed. Try to picture in your mind's eye, there they are, the once strong and united people of God, gone through turmoil after turmoil, exiled into a land they do not know, having lost everything because of their wickedness. They've lost their land. They've lost their homes. They've lost their ability to worship in the way they desire. Many of them have lost their families. It seems like they've even lost the promises of God. They have lost everything at this point. And it's all due to their sin. So just let that line sear itself into your heart even though they are far from deserving it, Jeremiah is going to declare to them that one day, though they do not deserve it, their sins will be forgiven and their their sins will be remembered no more. Can you feel it? How life-giving that would have felt for them. The wickedness that I have wrought, which has led me to this point, will one day be no longer remembered. Now I pray, Emmaus, that it lands on you just as heavy. For you, the people of Emmaus, just like the people of Israel and Judah, are lawbreakers. And you rightly deserve the wrath of God. You are, you are covenantly unfaithful. And you are prone to turn to your own idols. And I am with you. And as helpless as the exiled Israelites were, so are you. We, helpless in our state, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And it is by grace that we have been saved. Brothers, we have a covenant-keeping God who has been faithful on our behalf and spilt his blood that we might have our sins no longer remembered. Let's praise him as we we move out into this week and we read the next prophet, where we're going to see again in the next prophet, the people of God are unfaithful and our God is ultimately faithful. Let's pray. God, after working through a book like Jeremiah it honestly almost feels silly to come to you in prayer. Because what this this book does is it puts up a mirror for us to show us our wickedness and our frailty. But after reading a book like Jeremiah, we also say, where else am I going to go? The Lord is the one who forgives sins. The Lord is the one who is faithful in our behalf. The Lord is the one who, though we don't deserve it, is good to us. So God, we come to you. With all of our fickleness and frailty intact, we come to you, the only person we could turn to. So God, I pray that you be with us. We thank you for the new covenant. We thank you that we don't toil night and day to try to be justified by the words on the stone. But you have justified us and put your words on our hearts. Let us rest then, Lord. Let us rest in your work, not in what we can do. And let us be a free people, free to obey you, not out of duty, but delight. May we live as consistent, new covenant people and praise you for all of our days. Lord, I pray that you are glorified this morning. I pray that you delight in what we have said and done. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.